This is Guns and Butter. The other thing is, if you have a situation where if you make a loaf of bread or a pair of shoes and you're going to sell that, somebody is going to pay sales tax on that. Whereas, uh, if you just do derivatives, you're not taxed. And what that amounts to is a government subsidy for speculation, or if you like, a government penalty for producing something for human need. So that's a terrible situation, and that would have to be redressed. Even the Washington Post has recently conceded that the U.S. economy is over-financialized. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Webster Tarpley. Today's show, The Political Economy of the American System, Part 1. Webster Tarpley is an economic historian, author, and lecturer. He is author of Against Oligarchy, Surviving the Cataclysm, Your Guide Through the Worst Financial Crisis in Human History, 9-11 Synthetic Terror Made in the USA, Obama, the Unauthorized Biography, and co-author of George Bush, the Unauthorized Biography. He is a leader and activist with the United Front Against Austerity. Webster Tarpley recently hosted a two-and-one-half-day seminar, The Political Economy of the American System, in Silver Spring, Maryland, sponsored by the Tax Wall Street Party and the United Front Against Austerity. On today's program, we discuss this economic seminar and hear a clip from the introduction. Webster Tarpley, are you with me? Yes, I am. Yes, this this was a concentrated, uh, total immersion short course in the political economy of the American system. And just uh, let me just label that before we go on. It's Alexander Hamilton, Henry Clay, Friedrich List, Henry Carey, Lincoln, uh, the people around Lincoln, Justin Morrill, uh, of the Morrill Tariff, the Protective Tariff, uh, the populists of the 1890s, the Franklin D. Roosevelt New Deal, and of course it lives on into the Kennedy presidency, and uh, there are still echoes of it, but nowhere more concentrated than in the Tax Wall Street Party and the United Front Against Austerity. So what we tried to do was to uh, take stock of the tremendous crisis of leadership in this country, right? That we have a, a ruling class, the Wall Street predators, the Wall Street uh, financier oligarchs, who are collectively insane, be it on the strategic level, what they're trying to do in Syria, what they're trying to do in Ukraine. We're steering towards cataclysmic events there. And then we have this other side of it, which is we've been in the Depression since the World Derivatives Panic of 2008, the zombie bankers and the hedge fund hyenas are still untouched there in lower Manhattan. And uh, we've got to get out of it. We've got to have a recovery because otherwise we, we may indeed slip into this deflationary spiral, which is uh, a horrible thing. That's what uh, 1932-33 actually were. So the idea was, who is going to lead the United States out of this uh, crisis and what could we contribute? So we you got about a um, couple of dozen people together from uh, all over. We had one guy flying from Europe, from Vienna, uh, Austria, just for this. Uh, and so we um, put it together, uh, the method that would allow you to get out of it. And, of course, it comes down to two things. The first thing is tax Wall Street. 
tax Wall Street turnover, not even their profits, right? Because they'll always sock the profits away in the Bahamas or wherever it is. But tax their turnover, their uh, stocks as they go across the exchange. Same thing with uh, options, indices, futures, and so forth. Right now, Wall Street pays no taxes. The main problem in the fiscal situation of the United States, the budget crisis, if there is one, is that Wall Street doesn't pay anything. They're like the, the nobility before the French Revolution of 1789, right? They have the rare privilege to be exempt from taxation. So that's one side, and that's gaining, right? We've been, the, the uh, United Front Against Austerity, Tax Wall Street Party, we've been agitating for that uh, for the past two years or so. We got that on CNN right before the um, Obama inauguration, the second one. Uh, we've had candidates running. We had um, Randy Credico running for uh, mayor twice, once in the primary, once in the general in 2013. Then again for governor, tax Wall Street, 1% Wall Street sales tax was a big uh, element of his campaign. And then on top of this, the thing that I, I think so far we're really the only ones who talk about it, is to seize the Federal Reserve, that is to nationalize or deprivatize the Federal Reserve system so that instead of serving only the banker interest to the exclusion and to the detriment of everybody else, the Federal Reserve system would become a national bank in the way that Hamilton's first bank of the United States was a national bank. Uh, and what that means in practice is open up uh, for the first thing a infrastructure window uh, five trillion dollars immediately, 100-year maturities, zero percent coupon, and you get uh, every governor, every mayor, every county executive, whether they're Republican, Democrat, won't matter. They'll be running to get their piece of that huge infrastructure uh, building uh, appropriation. And it won't be borrowed from China. It won't come from tax money. It will use the inherent credit-creating power of the Federal Reserve, and God knows we've seen it, right? We've seen the Federal Reserve lending money to Barclays Bank, to Deutsche Bank, to Societe Generale. All the European zombie banks have cashed in on the Federal Reserve. How about some producers? How about some farmers, some industrialists, some contractors? Let's rebuild the, uh, the highway systems. Let's rebuild the um, water systems, uh, the ports, the locks, uh, and so forth. And uh, with that, we need about 30 million jobs to get to uh, full employment. So that's the goal, 30 million new productive jobs. And as recent events have underlined, we probably need about 10 million temporary jobs for people entering the labor force who have been excluded so far under various pretexts, but who could be brought in. So it's very much like Harry Hopkins and the Works Progress Administration or Harold Dickey's, the old one, not the current one, in uh, the uh, Public Works Administration back in the New Deal. So very much a, a New Deal. And uh, speaking of that seminar, the big thing that uh, capped it off, I guess, was that on, on um, Sunday, the 25th of January, the news came in that the Syriza party in Greece had won a stunning victory. And this was very much in line with what we've been agitating for. The, the, uh, the Syriza party, among other things, says no to austerity, no more cuts, roll back the cuts that have made, made so far, rehire the people that have been fired, uh, and a series of other things, right? Stop foreclosures, tax, uh, tax reform from the bottom up, not from the top down, uh, and so forth. So all the uh, 
the zombie bankers worldwide are now, um, I think, quite hysterical about what's going to come out of uh, Greece because this is now it's the first left-wing government in in all of the history of Greece, I guess we might say, since uh, what? It's the first left-wing government in Greece in 2,500 years. Certainly in the last uh, century, there's nothing, there's nothing like it. So um, what that shows, I think, is it's a model that we should study. And indeed, I hope we can talk about it. If you want to have a serious contender for power, if you want to really um, get a piece of the, uh, the action in terms of governing, right, taking power, that uh, Syriza example with Alexis Tsipras and the rest of the team there, that is a very good example and would repay a lot of study because I think it would uh, help you to stay away from various blind alleys that, that people have fallen in over recent years. So uh, everything is in motion now. Um, you had you know, all kinds of people, country uh, like uh, Belarus instituted exchange controls and capital controls. Russia has done pretty much the same thing. We're in the twilight of this terrible time called globalization. Uh, economic globalization goes back to James Baker and George Bush the Elder. Uh, this has been a nightmare. This has been a disaster for humanity. The neoliberal consensus, the, uh, the Washington consensus has tended to rule the world. This is now in the process of collapsing. But then the big question is, what then? And who has the actual program to lead a country or uh, larger groups out of the depression, right? How do you end a depression? How do you defeat a depression? That's the big question. Not not how much can you complain, how much can you come up with uh, zingers about how bad it is. Everybody knows that. What's the answer? What's the path that leads back to the uh, the sunlit uplands of economic recovery? You mentioned the Federal Reserve here in the United States and how it funds zombie banks, but not the real economy of the country. I would think that people would be shocked at this. People tend to think of the Federal Reserve at least as partially part of the government. Why would the Federal Reserve be funding zombie banks that should go bankrupt and not our own economy? Well, this is a system that's been around for for more than 100 years. It really goes back to that extreme right-wing Wall Street Democrat, Grover Cleveland. Maybe we can not go back all the way to that, but it's been around for a hundred years since the Federal Reserve Act of, what, 1914, with Woodrow Wilson, who was uh, another uh, Wall Street Democrat. Uh, And the idea is that instead of having a national bank, everybody knew what Alexander Hamilton had done with the first Bank of the United States in 1791. That was simply indispensable for the survival of this country after the Revolutionary War. The British thought that they could... Uh, destroy U.S. independence. They had a death watch going, as they called it. Uh, but that was in vain because uh, Alexander Hamilton knew what to do in terms of uh, providing credit, defending the U.S. markets against the, the uh, exorbitant power of London. Uh, and then, again, a little bit later, 1817, we have the second bank of the United States, this one piloted by Henry Clay. And just remember, Abraham Lincoln is the direct disciple of Henry Clay. So two banks of the United States, and what you found is as long as you had the Bank of the United States going, things were going pretty well, but uh, once the Bank of the United States lapsed, as it did during the War of 1812, or around that time, then you began to get disasters, and when the second one lapsed, you had the Panic of 1837, which was uh, 
a cataclysmic uh, disaster for the country and set everything on the road towards secessionism and civil war, right? We're just going through the 150th anniversary of all that. So by the time you get to the 1890s, you've got J.P. Morgan, and he's, he's essentially the long arm of London and the city of London financial community. And um, they decide that they're going to uh, arrogate to themselves this uh, power which the Constitution puts into the Congress. They say, we're going we're gonna to take that away and set up a um, Federal Reserve System, which will be owned by bankers. That is, all, all the branches, right, the, the New York Fed, the San Francisco Fed, the Chicago Fed, all this. Those are all owned by local bankers, so they're privately owned. But the big question is... Who makes the policy, right? The technicalities of ownership are one thing, but the policy is what counts. And the, the, the policies of the Federal Reserve Board come from the secret deliberations of cliques of bankers, and everything is done behind the scenes. So that when you had the, uh, the panic, the derivatives panic of 2008, you had uh, the, the Treasury, right, under law, I guess, putting out about $1.5 trillion of bailouts, the, the so-called TARP, Troubled Asset Relief Program. But at the same time, you had the Federal Reserve opening a line of credit of about $27 trillion, trillion for zombie bankers, including prominently foreign zombie bankers. And they had a, a situation where in order to get that money, 0% for as long as you needed it, you had to be a bank or a hedge fund, or a dealer in U.S. securities, or a money market fund. It got to be that any financial institution, no matter how predatory, no matter how bankrupt and insolvent, could get a generous loan from the Federal Reserve. But if you were a producer of any kind, right, you name it, uh, you, 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 were, you were shut out. So you were just uh, out of luck when it came to that. So most people simply are, are not aware that this is what's going on. Your ultimate goal would be to, uh, again, to nationalize the Federal Reserve, and that would mean the operations of the Federal Reserve would have to be controlled by a public law passed by the House, passed by the Senate, signed by the President, and it would say the U.S. credit requirements for the next year are X trillion, and this is going to be lent in priority order to production first and uh, scientific research and other beneficial things. Uh, but not to financial speculation or financial services or other predatory activities, because God knows we've had enough of that. So uh, that would be the, the goal. I'm speaking with economic historian and author Webster Tarpley. Today's show, The Political Economy of the American System, Part 1. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. But now, in the meantime... You can take advantage of the very lawlessness of the system. Right? Since the Federal Reserve operates secretly and illegally, well, uh, pressure them politically and force them to start opening up windows. Here, I'll give you some ideas for windows. One would be to open a student loan refinancing window. Right? We've got $1.2 trillion, $1.3 trillion of, of high-interest student loan debt. Well... Let's force the Federal Reserve to open up a window where you bring in your student loans and you're paying 6, 7, 8, 10, 12 percent, and they refinance it at zero percent 
for as long as you need, by 20 years, 30 years. So you can essentially neutralize that and reduce that to a very modest uh, monthly or, or yearly payment or whatever it is. Uh, the other one would be, once again, the infrastructure window. This is the classic Franklin D. Roosevelt New Deal way to, way to handle it. You, um, I would say about $5 trillion would be needed here in the U.S. to get it going. Uh, this is ironic because under quantitative easing, right? This, the, what the Federal Reserve has been doing under Bernanke and now under Yellen, is that they uh, offer a support operation, really, for bankrupt toxic derivatives, what they call mortgage-backed securities, collateralized debt obligations. And since those things are bankrupt and nobody wants them, the Federal Reserve buys them to mask, to hide the bankruptcy of the zombie banks. And over the past a couple of years, the Federal Reserve has bought up between $3 trillion and $4 trillion of toxic, bankrupt, kited derivatives. Uh, and that's sitting now on the balance sheet of the Federal Reserve. It's not good. That money could have gotten you the beginnings of a real recovery, right? Imagine a, uh, a maglev railway from New York City to Washington. You get here in one hour. Uh, New York to uh, San Francisco in two or three hours, right? And, of course, it, it allows you to avoid the uh, increasingly crowded airspace, right? You're soon going to run up against actual physical barriers in terms of the, um, the, the amount of uh, air traffic you can allow per, per mile, per square mile, and, and so forth. So all of these things would become possible. Other windows? Well, a Main Street window. How about that? Um, you know, Wall Street, Main Street. If you had a, a Main Street window, you could certainly say, well, you know, rural America deserves a break. Um, you can also have a farm window, right, farm credit, uh, to try to revive the family farm, push out the, the great agribusiness monopolies by making very cheap federal credit available to farmers, and so on down the line. Right? You can think of a whole bunch of things. Another one, how about an anti-foreclosure window? Suppose you are struggling to keep your primary residence, and you can't make the payment. How about the Federal Reserve comes in and refinances that at 0% with a, a very long maturity, right, 50 years, say, if you needed it. That way you get to stay in your house and the, the zombie banks don't get to uh, auction off your property. So you can see the, the possibilities of using very cheap, right, if it's not 0%, then close to 0% federal loans, at very long maturities, uh, the possibilities here are, are tremendous, and it's a way to uh, to get things going again. In particular, the younger generation now, the millennials, are being crushed, above all, by the student uh, debt. Uh, the The entire progress of the millennials through life is now overshadowed by this colossal debt burden, which is interfering with uh, things like you know, marriage, children, family formation, um, questions of uh, buying a house, buying a car. In other words, this entire economic mechanism is is breaking down because of this uh, 1.3 trillion uh, dollar debt burden. Now, you could also argue that since higher education in the United States is essentially training the workforce for corporations, the corporations ought to pay for it. That's that's certainly a very cogent argument. But right now, the immediate thing we could do is to say. If you've got those student loans and you're paying 8 or 10%, we can bring it down to 0%. That is the very least we can do. And that could be done 
once again with the phone call, since the Federal Reserve operates outside the law, you don't need to wait for the Congress. Obama, or let's say a real president, could pick up the phone and say, um, Madame Yellen, uh, I'm so happy to hear that you've decided to open a student loan window at the Federal Reserve, that you're going to be giving out unlimited sums of 0% 50-year credit to uh, people who need it, right, whose lives have been put on hold by this atrocious uh, debt burden, by this crazy system of financing higher education. And we're so glad that you've now opened that window so that anybody who has a student loan anywhere in the United States can go to their local bank, get that refinanced, and the, uh, the local banker can then turn to the Federal Reserve and rediscount all those notes and get their money so that the, uh, the notes eventually land at the Federal Reserve. And with that, uh, a generation can start moving forward again instead of being crushed, right? So those are some of the things. Um, it's just a, it's a matter of, uh, of greed. Uh, maybe just a, a, a word about this Wall Street sales tax, uh, since this is um, on the agenda right now. And, and as yes. I tried to point out, we, uh, the United Front Against Austerity, the Tax Wall Street Party, as the name suggests, we have been agitating around this point for quite a while. Um, and it looks like this. Uh, Wall Street generally pays no taxes. You look at somebody like Goldman Sachs, their effective federal income tax, corporate income tax, probably about 3 or 4% on these colossal uh, profits, right? Looting profits that they uh, bring in. And then if you look a little bit further, General Electric, uh, which is no longer an industrial corporation, but it's generally known as a, it's a hedge fund, right? A hedge fund in disguise. General Electric actually gets more back from the federal government than it pays in. So they have a negative tax rate. And again, if you want to find something comparable, you've got to go back to France before the French Revolution, where the people in the cities had to pay taxes, but the nobility living in castles didn't didn't have to pay anything. So this is crazy. The idea then is, why not uh, get around the legions of accountants and lawyers and fixers that the that the banks have and tax them just as their uh, options, indices, futures, derivatives, stocks, and so forth, bonds, corporate bonds, go across the exchanges, because that has to happen pretty much in the light of day. So extract about 1%. This would mean that you would no longer have this terrible danger of flash trading. Right there, There's a recent book about the flash boys, uh, and the flash boys are people who game these markets where, you know, a lot of little people have their retirement savings, but along come the flash boys, and they say, we can, we can make arbitrage profits by having a million transactions per second. Well, with a 1% Wall Street sales tax, uh, that will come to an end. And all kinds of other program trading, high-frequency trading, would also tend to come to an end. And you'd go back to a much more stable buy-and-hold model. Right? If you want to have some stocks, sure, buy them. Uh, if you're an individual, of course, you can have an exemption, say, of $1 million per person, in your family, so that if you're buying and selling things for your retirement account, that's fine, but uh, not a million transactions per second, because that leads to things like that awful, scary flash crash of May 2010. That was uh, quite scary to see that the Dow go down a thousand points or more in about five minutes. Right, that meant a lot of people were thinking that their 
residual, uh, you know, retirement had, had uh, evaporated. So you got to try to put a stop to that. The other thing is, if you have a situation where if you make a loaf of bread or a pair of shoes and you're going to sell that, somebody is going to pay sales tax on that. Whereas, uh, if you just do derivatives, you're not taxed. And what that amounts to is a government subsidy for speculation, or, if you like, a government penalty for producing something for human need. So that's a terrible situation, and that would have to be redressed. Even the Washington Post has recently conceded that the U.S. economy is over-financialized, that there are too many people, smart young people in Wall Street, uh, that um, is about $300 billion uh, of, of, of uh, salaries that go into Wall Street that, that are excessive. In other words, that this is, this is more than even the Washington Post thinks you might, you might need. So you've got to do something about that. And the, the other great irony of this is, since uh, here we are in New York City, New York State has a modest but uh, noticeable Wall Street sales tax, uh, except that it's not collected. This is an amazing story. You go back to Governor Hugh Carey, Democrat, in the late uh, 1970s, right-wing Democrat, let me add. The Wall Street people came to him and said, look, you're collecting a tax on Wall Street transactions. You get rid of that or we go to New Jersey or we go to Connecticut. And Carey, of course, immediately caved in as a good Wall Street Democrat should. I'm sure the current, the current governor would pretty much do the same thing. He keeps it that way. So they got the, um, the uh, administration to essentially say the government in Albany will collect a Wall Street sales tax but it will instantly refund it, remit it, give it back to the uh, hedge funds and the banks and the speculators and so forth. So that you're, you're left with a, you know, about a 20 or $30 billion repayment, because that's what it would have meant. Um, with 20 to $30 billion in hand, the state of New York would no longer have to think about austerity in any way. All those employees could be rehired. All those health programs and community programs could be re-established. Uh, you could get uh, Head Start for everybody. You could get uh, breakfast and lunch in every school. You could get a whole series of things. Um, you can just about make up your wish list, and uh, with that kind of money, you could, you could fulfill all those things. So if you want to concretely roll back these austerity measures and start um, recognizing the economic rights of the American people, even in New York City, that uh, New York State version would be would be key, but of course the the Wall Street Democrats won't let you do that, and that's why it's going to take something uh, something more. But uh, once you do it, then the uh, the, the perspectives become uh, tremendous. So I think those are the two things: uh, redress the balance between production and speculation with the Wall Street sales tax, and at the same time prevent the Federal Reserve from serving foreign banks in preference to uh, American working people or American uh, businesses. And, and this goes down to a pretty much street level, right? You, if, you're a, if you're a dry cleaner, you should be able to get cheap federal credit because you're providing a productive service. If you're a restaurant, you should have uh, some uh, access to cheap federal credit, right? An automobile repair shop, absolutely. So there are, there's a whole layer of small businesses that would benefit from this. 
And the goal of, of saying this is uh, right right now, a lot of small businessmen foolishly believe that their interests are identical with Wall Street. They are not. They're they're absolutely uh, contradictory and antithetical. So uh, it would be time to uh, to register register that. Uh, but again, uh, it's very hard to get any of this stuff done in the in the uh, Democratic Party. However, we do have one good thing. After all this agitation, uh, we've just had the House. House of Representatives Democratic leadership. It's Congressman Van Hollen here in uh, Maryland, and uh, he has come forward with a, a proposal from the House Democrats, which includes a one-tenth of one percent Wall Street sales tax. He calls it a transaction tax or a financial transfer tax, but it's a Wall Street sales tax. And by the way, Wall Street sales tax is what you want to call it. Don't call it a Robin Hood tax. That's a loser. Robinhood tax immediately, the Republicans will go to town on you that you want to rob from the rich and you're going to scare the, uh, the middle class with that. Don't do that. Call it what it is, a Wall Street sales tax. You pay sales tax, I pay sales tax, but they don't. So make them pay. Make Wall Street pay a sales tax, even a modest one, on these uh, turnover transactions. So Van Hollen says 0.1%, one-tenth of 1% on stocks. Well... That's at least a step forward. That, and that's coming really from Pelosi, right? Nancy Pelosi and, uh, and the House uh, Democratic leadership are, are putting that forward. Uh, how sincere they are, how energetic they will be, whether they will fight for this all the way, this is now in anybody's guess, and it depends on uh, sort of agitation, right? And in other words, how much are their feet going to be held to the fire by their constituency? I hope a lot. Because Van Hollen's estimate is just that one-tenth of one percent could mean $80 billion per year for the federal government over the next 10 years. Uh, which would mean this entire monstrosity of the sequester is about that. Right? So it's about the same size. If you could get the one-tenth of one percent Wall Street sales tax on stocks, you could roll back the worst of the sequester, right? which is just having a terrible... A devastating impact on things like, you know, the National Institutes of Health, right? You want to have some scientific uh, medical, biomedical research going, you better get rid of that sequester and across the board, right? It, it, it impacts so many areas. And that's what, uh, that's what Ben Holland has proposed. Now, the obvious thing is why only stocks? Why not extend that to derivatives, which in the current uh, situation of the financial markets, the derivatives are much more important, right? There, there are a lot more of them. Um, the the value, notional value of derivatives, outstanding, probably worldwide, not really known, but it's somewhere in the area of two quadrillion dollars. That is two thousand trillion dollars of derivatives, and of course they're backed up by absolutely nothing. This is a really dangerous ticking time bomb, and if, if, even if the Federal Reserve has bought up $3 trillion, that doesn't go very far when you're dealing with $2,000 trillion, right? So there's a lot more derivatives out there. And, of course, the reason you don't have an economic recovery is that the banking system is clogged with these derivatives, and they can't get rid of all of them, and if they acknowledge them, they'd all be uh, insolvent, right? The Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation would come to them on one Friday afternoon and say, guess what? <laughs> you know, big Wall Street bank, you're insolvent. We're wrapping you up. You're going to be closed. So there's, there's the situation we're in. And you won't get out of the depression unless you do something about those 
derivatives. But one thing you can do to, to sort of begin to drain that swamp is start, start taxing those derivatives, even if it's one-tenth of one percent. That would get you up into the, I don't know what, 200 billion range, 250 billion range. And you can see that makes a big difference in, in the federal budget. So those are the two things. Nationalize the Fed, deprivatize the Fed, call it what you will, and a Wall Street sales tax. And then from those uh, two points, then uh, on the budget, federal budget side and the general credit stimulus side, you can begin to, to rebuild an economy, right? Rebuild full employment. How about that? We haven't had full employment since 1945. We need to get it. The United States was traditionally a high-wage country. We've been transformed into a low-wage country. This, this is impossible. You'll never underbid, uh, you know, low-paid labor in, in Southeast Asia or something. It's just hopeless. You'll never be able to do it. So why not go back to the high-wage economy that, uh, that made uh, the United States uh, a successful proposition there for a while? I'm speaking with economic historian and author Webster Tarpley. Today's show, The Political Economy of the American System, Part 1. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Shall we hear a clip from your introduction to the economic seminar? Probably play it, no? The title, as you see, The Political Economy of the American System. I will, at some point, tell you the history of this course. I have given this course quite a number of times, starting about 1970 or 1971. Uh, as a result of this course, political organizations, in particular, something called the Italian Labor Party, Partito Operaio Europeo, were created in the early 1970s. So it's a class that aims to recruit people to a movement. Certainly, it does that. It makes no bones about it. Uh, but not as foot soldiers, as leaders. We don't have any room at this point for the good soldier Schweik, right? We need people who are willing to take part as leaders. So, here we go. You might get a college education in a single weekend. I sure hope so. Uh, the method here, and you'll see that it's rooted in a specific psychological approach, is rather than going through this pedestrian and uh, painful long, weary process of digging yourself up and clawing yourself up from the bottom, why not come in sweeping and just assimilate the whole thing from the top down in the time it takes to snap your fingers? And of course, you can do that, provided you're willing to do several years of uh, preparatory work. So the idea is learn subjects from the top down and avoid years and years of effort to assimilate the obscurantist minutiae, right, which are only of interest to academics anyway. I flatter myself, some people can attain genius. Just about anybody can be a genius, but of course, genius is work. So once again, this is a process of uh, striving for it. Some people can become mass leaders. That's our greatest hope. Virtually everybody can benefit. Now, for the understanding of this that I have, the principal prerequisite is a desire to overthrow and replace the imperialist finance bourgeoisie. That is to say, Wall Street, the financier oligarchy. Uh, that is a ruling class that we can no longer tolerate. They are simply incompetent, and uh, the future of civilization 
looks very grim if they're allowed to keep up with their shenanigans. If some of this has scared you so far, if you say, well, I don't really have much formal education, I'm not versed in all this stuff, that can become an advantage. It's probably easier to learn some of these topics, economics especially, from the top down, if you've never learned it. Because if you think you know it, that becomes the biggest obstacle, because it is a thoroughly corrupt discipline. So you don't need to unlearn the mystifications pervade by the quackademics. The quackademics being my funny word for the professors, right? Die professoralen Fachidioten, as they used to say, right? The, that was the old German uh, student movement. So what's the starting point? We've had 25 years of globalization, and humanity is in agony. It's not clear whether the deaths every day from starvation, malnutrition, diarrhea, other diseases that can be cured for 25, 50 cents, or 40,000 or 50,000, but that's the ballpark. 50,000 people a day across the world die from underdevelopment, lack of clean water, lack of elementary immunizations, and all the rest. We're also witnessing the collapse of governments and societies into failed states, chaos, and warlordism. And you'll say, yeah, Tartley, the CIA does that stuff. Yes, but the only way they can do that is with the prerequisite, the conditions created by the uh, economic breakdown crisis. We've always got the threat of pandemics, right? We had a close brush with the pandemic. We'll have more. Today, the bulletin of the atomic scientists has set the doomsday clock two minutes closer to the end of the world. They've gone from five minutes to midnight to three minutes uh, to midnight. We've gotten two minutes closer to the uh, apocalypse. Uh, and they cite a number of things, but I think major war, right? The crisis with Russia by itself would be enough. And then there's always this question of the Chinese adventurism in regard to small islands and the South China Sea and similar places. The economic breakdown crisis is worsening. By the time you leave this classroom, I hope that you'll know enough economics to know that deflation is not a question of the Super Bowl and sports, but it's an, a severe economic problem. Are you supposed to laugh at that? That was a gag line. Have you not followed this thing about deflate gate and the, the footballs? And they say, the New England Patriots are accused of deflation. Then all the, all the libertarians love them. And we've got lunatics talking about civil war, right? Glenn Beck talks about civil war. Michael Savage talks about civil war. You know, we are here on a battlefield of the U.S. Civil War. This is where the Confederates under Early came down Georgia Avenue out here, and they were stopped at Fort Stevens, which is about a mile away. And that's where Abraham Lincoln came out and got shot at. And Oliver Wendell Holmes said to him, get down, you fool because you didn't want to see him get killed. If Maybe tomorrow in the break we can, if you have any Civil War buffs here, we'll organize a little excursion just to go down there and, and take a look at it. All right. In the center of this, right, so you say, where do we come in? There's a world crisis of the ruling oligarchy. Now, in the, in the course of human society, we've had all sorts of ruling classes, right? We've had societies ruled by priests, by generals, by bureaucrats, by demagogues, but the one we have is ruled by bankers, okay? This is an oligarchy, plutocracy, ruled by 
bankers. And as uh, Plato, one of our big strong points in these lectures, we're, we're coming at you from Plato, right? This is Plato here, we're attempting. So the evils of plutocracy, right? He says, oligarchy is a constitution filled with many evils where the rich rule and the poor people have no say. That is the reality. But we've also got our friends, the left liberal mushheads that are all over us, right? They dominate the scene, right? From Michael Moore, you know, the drill, Noam Chomsky, all the rest of them. Their ultimate belief is that the bankers should rule. If you get one of these people to be honest, they will say, well, bankers are going to be better than priests, generals, bureaucrats, demagogues. Bankers are going to be better, right? They'll say Soros is better than some general. Well, uh, we would say to those left liberal muchheads, what about you? If not you, who? And if not now, when? Right? That was the old slogan in the student movement. Also notice that the mushheads believe there's no such thing as right and wrong, so you gotta essentially take what you can get. Now, then we have our other friends, the libertarians. And the problem with the libertarians is they demand austerity. It's a kind of austerity which has been historically shown to destroy the political and economic system of the countries where it's imposed. I'm thinking especially of Chancellor Brüning in Germany between 1930 and 1932. What made Germany ripe for Hitler was two years of savage austerity, on the whole quite similar to what Ron Paul was proposing in his last presidential campaign. So these libertarians ultimately destroy the safeguards economically, politically, and make bankers rule inevitable. So the conclusion is, in the good Plato sense, the world needs philosopher leaders. And of course he says, philosopher kings and philosopher queens. And this is quite, a, quite an achievement for Plato in the times in which he lived to realize that women were emphatically included. So what we need though is philosophers to be influential in society. And this is my appeal to you. Don't you want to be part of this? Now, I want to compliment you on your good sense to come here rather than to Davos, Switzerland. And here's where you have the financier oligarchs and all their creatures, right? Meeting on the Magic Mountain, Thomas Mann's famous book. Of course, in those days, it was a tuberculosis sanitarium. Today, it's for those who are disturbed, committed to improving the state of the world. Or, if you didn't go to that one, there's another one, and that is the Koch Brothers Retreat. The Koch Brothers are gathering in Palm Springs, California, and if you want to run for office, they'll vet you. Uh, so don't go there. Now, in order to make my talk a little bit more concrete, uh, I say the ruling class has struck out, okay? I say if you let them stay in power, it's going to be bad. So what's the answer? We got to start thinking about replacing the ruling class, but I got I to gotta make my case. David Rockefeller, still alive, uh, under normal circumstances, he should have taken over from John J. McCloy and McGeorge Bundy as the spokesperson of the Eastern Banking Establishment. That is to say, the US system, we've had Colonel Stimson, Colonel Henry Stimson, We've had John J. McCloy, one of his protégés, 
McGeorge Bundy, one of his protégés, when Bundy didn't want to do it anymore, it seemed to be the time for David Rockefeller to step forward and take over as the spokesperson, not the dictator, but the spokesperson. And he couldn't do it. He was too stupid. It was all gone. They said he was too dumb to balance his own checkbook. And he's the head of, was the head of Chase Manhattan, J.P. Morgan Chase. Now, he's been replaced by Jamie Dimon running Chase, Chase, J.P. Morgan Chase. And, of course, uh, this, is, this is one of the people who brought down all the zombie banks. I guess we can call him the classic zombie banker. And all he could think of in the most recent outing was to make phone calls to people and tell them, people in Congress, and tell them that they had to vote to use Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation money to insure his derivative speculation, right? He's also responsible for the London Whale. You know that one? Seven, eight billion dollars in losses. Unbelievable. He's incompetent. Looks like he spends all of his time in a tanning bed. <laughs> now, of course, the infamous David Koch. His father was a great supporter of Mussolini, member of the John Birch Society, but also dealt with the Soviets, right? He was not averse to communist forced labor if he needed it. He's going to get Rubio, Cruz, Rand Paul, Walker to this gathering at Palm Springs, California this weekend. And the, the, the press coverage is the Koch primary tests hopefuls for the GOP. Now, I submit to you, how long can such a system last? Not long, I say. On the other wing, this is a classic gang, counter gang, Soros, George Soros, and his, his leading idea is that the U.S. population is not stupefied enough. They have to be more stupefied. And what you need is a massive infusion of marijuana, right? Marijuana dispensers in every school, third graders, whatever you want. Uh, and of course, this is the left. The left wing of the Democratic Party, the Socialist International, the International Trade Union Conference, you know the drill. How about this guy? I was going to, actually, maybe we can do a little guessing, right, if you want to liven things up. Tom Steyer, worth a modest $1.6 is an environmentalist fanatic. This is now the left wing of the Democratic Party, worked at Goldman Sachs in risk arbitrage. That means gambling under Rubin. And Rubin, of course, was one of the people who wrecked the Clinton administration from the inside. And of course, what he does, he takes advantage of Citizens United. He spent $74 million on the last Senate election, right, 2012. But unfortunately for him, none of his candidates succeeded. Who's that? Sorry. Rupert Murdoch. Okay. <laughs> This uh, figure of the British Empire, okay? So from Australia to Britain to the United States, tabloids, Fox News, reactionary, tending towards fascism on any number of points. But he counts as a member of the Anglo-American ruling class, like the rest of these people that I'm showing you. Here's an interesting one. Who's that? Henry Kravis. Uh, Kohlberg Kravis Roberts. This is your basic junk bond assisted hostile takeover of the 1980s. Bought RJR Nabisco, $27 billion, and wrote the biggest check in world history up to that point, $27, $28 billion. 
from Kohlberg, Kravis Roberts to RJR Nabisco. But he has a political dimension. Anybody know what his political dimension is? Yes. And what, is, what does he do for Petraeus? Yeah, there you go. He is the financial angel for General David Petraeus, right? The principal focus of Bonapartism. That is to turn the United States into a military dictatorship, however veiled or however hoped up. He's the one who's behind that, right? So he's, um, what can we say, as Krupp was to Hitler, Kravis is to Petraeus. Is that too much? No, I think that's probably understated. So that's uh, Petraeus, obviously. Um, he's threatened with indictment. We want him indicted, and we want his friend Alan indicted too. And Alan being the ISIS czar. A young <laughs> Henry Kissinger. Back when the world was young, and Henry Kissinger, right, he said, power is the greatest aphrodisiac. <laughs> now, here I have another one. I give you a hint. Peter Thiel. Peter Thiel. Yeah. What's his ruling passion? Yeah, but what does he do? Two things that he does. Yeah, the seasteading. Remember, in, in the 1930s, there used to be gambling ships, right? And people would go out there, and that would become Las Vegas, you know, off the port of New York. So he wants to have places where there's no law, right? Where they can do anything. And, of course, for him, anything really means anything. And the other thing is, he doesn't want you to go to college. Don't go to college. They'll even pay you. Your parents, your parents can sacrifice for 20 years to get you into college, and he'll come along and give you more money to make you quit. This is big new Brzezinski. <laughs> Here, this is the Verkunde conference. That's coming up now in about a month, right? That's another one you don't want to go to. So look, um, the problem that we have, the weakness of leadership, right, the void of leadership here in the United States, is that the last real president was Franklin D. Roosevelt with his four terms and his control of the Federal Reserve. He dictated to the Federal Reserve what they would do. And after that, the U.S. financier oligarchy said, hey, this is an oligarchy. Never again a real president, because under the Constitution, if you have a strong personality, the president can very well uh, break the power. He can check the uh, power of the oligarch. Now, we've had a series of puppet presidents. And as you go through this, right, this is political economy. So we're looking at the political preconditions for programmatic political action. The biggest mistake you can make in political analysis is to assume that a modern U.S. president is automatically running the government in command. That's a fallacy. That's the most ridiculous assumption you can make. It's much better to assume the opposite, that he's a powerless figurehead, like a ceremonial president, right, on the, what, the uh, uh, German or Italian model, where the president has no power. If, you are, if you're a president, that's just the beginning. You then have to fight, fight for and win power, and most of them never do it. The idea was to cram a, what, 10 or 12 week course into a single weekend, given the world emergency, right, given the fact that the, uh, the financial structures are, are in crisis, and you've got, you know, things going on, especially the Greek um, example of, uh, of a challenge to the power of the bankers, right, that puts you into a very sort of unstable geometry, so you, you need people to be brought up to speed. Now, of course, and I would also hasten to point out, yeah, that's controversial, right? Some of that stuff for the listeners might, might seem controversial. I'm sure for some it did. Um, my 
contention, though, is you look at Syriza and look at the program that they won on, okay? This is now the one example of a winning political effort, right? Not symbolic, not changing the national conversation, but actually taking power, right? There's a, there's a prime minister whose name is Alexis Tsipras. There's a finance minister named Varoufakis, and they've, they've taken power. And if you look at the way they did it, they did it with mass traction economic demands, anti-austerity demands, New Deal demands. And even the fact that they had demands for some people is, is already heretical. And I say no. As Frederick Douglass said, power concedes nothing without a demand. So you better have some, some demands. And you better have some demands that if, they, if you add them up, they actually uh, amount to an economic uh, recovery. So I think that's, uh, that's important. I hope we can actually go through what, what Syriza has done. Um, the short form is they have the Wall Street sales tax. They have the uh, seizing control of the European Central Bank together with other uh, countries. And they, one of the things they want to do is cut the debt in half. Uh, they're offering a 50% cut of the Greek uh, debt. Uh, of course, there's nothing really so surprising about that, right? You go back to General Motors and Chrysler, as they were bailed out in 2008-2009, the bondholders of Chrysler got back uh, 29 cents on the dollar. So it's about a 30%, 29-30% payoff on that debt, and General Motors turned out to be something similar, although a lot of people got, got less at the moment. I think some of it has uh, has bounced back. So if Greece is saying, cut our debt by 50% so we can breathe and survive, General Motors and Chrysler actually cut it even more. So why should you uh, not extend to a uh, sovereign country the, the same uh, treatment that you extended to an industrial corporation, which you rightly wanted to, uh, to preserve? So uh, I hope that people will look at that as a, uh, you know, an urge to uh, a, a kind of a stimulus to an actual discussion, right? What is the form of organization that you need? Above all, what kind of program do you need? What can you learn from Syriza and some other interesting things that are going on in Europe, both positive and negative? But with Syriza, it's overwhelmingly positive. It's certainly the best thing that has happened in the last, uh, what, five or six years, 10 years, whatever, and maybe, maybe even longer. I've been speaking with Webster Tarpley, Today's show has been The Political Economy of the American System, Part 1. Webster Tarpley is an economic historian, author, and lecturer. He is author of Against Oligarchy, Surviving the Cataclysm, Your Guide Through the Worst Financial Crisis in Human History, 9-11 Synthetic Terror, Made in the USA, Obama, The Unauthorized Biography, and co-author of George Bush, the Unauthorized Biography. Webster Tarpley is a leader and activist with the United Front Against Austerity at againstausterity.org. Visit his website at tarpley.net. Email him at tarpley at tarpley.net. Guns and Butter is produced and edited by Bonnie Faulkner. To make comments or order copies of shows, email me at faulkner at gunsandbutter.org. That's F-A-U-L-K-N-E-R at G-U-N-S-A-N-D-B-U-T-T-E-R dot O-R-G. Visit our transitional website at gunsandbutter.org 
to sign up for our email list so we can keep you apprised of the launch of our new website on March 1st. Trying to steal your life. 